Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. It's Wicked Wednesday. Welcome back. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. This is our Wicked Wednesday special edition on Johnny Freight and Parrot. So grab your mimosas and settle in. It's Halloween night in Amarillo, Texas. The year is 1981, and Halloween falls on a Saturday. The kids are done trick-or-treating for the night. Their candy has been examined by their parents, and they are hopefully in their beds, resting from a long night of trick-or-treating and recovering from their sugar highs. Those finding it hard to sleep may be elderly women who live alone. In fact, any woman living alone may be feeling uneasy on Halloween this time in Amarillo. In July, Marnie Bryson, a 77-year-old woman who lived alone, was found dead in her home. She was raped, beaten, and strangled with a telephone cord, and her murderer has still not been identified or captured, leaving women on edge everywhere in Amarillo. While most are asleep, Sister Tadia Benz is being brutally raped and murdered. Sister Benz lives in a convent with many other nuns, but to their surprise, no one was awakened by this. The attacker appears to have slit the screen on the bottom floor and came in the window. He climbed the stairwell to the second floor, past several other nuns' rooms along the way, and it was said that Sister Benz was hard of hearing and left the door ajar at night. Maybe this is why she was the one that was chosen on that fateful Halloween night. Some call Halloween the devil's night, and I guess only someone with the devil was an Captain Jimmy Davis of the Amarillo Police Department notices similarities to the Brasson murder. Both women were elderly, both raped, both beaten, both mutilated the same way. Both crime scenes have a white t-shirt balled up and left, and both have recovered hairs that appear to be black curly hair that they think is from Hispanic. And more to the point, they think this person is Cuban. The DA and the police chief agree that with all the similarities, they have to be connected. The police question several Cuban men during the Boston murder and even two peeping toms, but nothing panned out. The police are desperate for answers, and they take to having an elderly lady that was attacked but can't remember hypnotized. This didn't help. She still can't remember anything. Then they seek out a psychic for guidance. Wait, did you say a psychic? Is this how police work was done in the 80s? That's crazy. Yes. So I guess desperate times call for desperate measures. They go to Ines Bubbles. She calls herself Bubbles Patterson. She just goes by Bubbles, though. So she gives police an address of 1400 Northeast 18th Street, which is right across from the convent. She says she sees his name is Claude, maybe, and that this man is about 5'11 with big ears. 
head to the address that she gave them to question whoever they find there. They find 17-year-old Johnny Frank Garrett lives there. Does Clyde live there? Well, kind of. They do have a dog named Clyde, so I guess technically. The dog did it. <laughs> so, Garrett, his mom, and his siblings are watching Monday Night Football, where they get a knock at the door which turns out to be police. They say they have a warrant for the arrest of Garrett and they have a search warrant. They tell his mother that he is being arrested for stealing a truck and they take him to the police station with them. His mother is there with the rest of the kids when her sister calls and says the news broke in because they had someone in custody for the murder of Sister Benz. She asks who it is and her sister tells her that it's Garrett. Charlotte Carmen, his mother, leaves to the police department now to find out what is going on. The police tell her that Garrett has confessed to the rape and murder. However, they can't get him to, to sign the confession they wrote out for him. She told them that's because Garrett didn't do this. Garrett sees her and he tells her the same thing that he did not do this. The police have on video where they read him his Miranda rights but forgot to record the confession. Yeah, shocker. So the confession says he he was high on two hits of acid and drank a bottle of Lord Calvert before committing the murder. He came in the win window, raped and murdered her, and went out the same window. Of course, police have evidence that the murderer left out a door in which a bloody fingerprint was found. New on the job is Dr. Ralph Earthman, the medical examiner. He was just hired in October. When he gets Sister Ben's body, he takes semen samples. Of course, they didn't have the DNA we do now, um, so they could only test by blood top. Within days of Garrett's arrest, these samples have disappeared. Dr. Earthman thinks he may have accidentally thrown them out. How on earth do you accidentally throw out semen samples? <laughs> I have no idea. So the FBI comes back and they say there was no blood on Garrett's clothes. None of the fibers from the scene matched any in his house. None of Garrett's shoes matched the bloody footprint at the scene, and none of his shoes had glass embedded in them. The stab wounds did not match any knives found in the house. The black hairs found in Sister Ben's mouth and on her body did not match his. There were no fingerprints on or in the room that matched his. The only thing that did match him was a butter knife found under the bed with his fingerprints on this, but this was not the murder weapon and there was no blood on it. This sounds like something they have nothing on in here, so I guess they let him go. Uh, you would think they would let him go, but remember, they have the psychic and an unsigned confession. Oh, and a butter knife. So they've got a good Ooh, a case. Smoking gun there. <laughs> So police also take to the media right away talking about how psychotic this boy is. By sixth grade, Garrett still couldn't read or write. He's slow, as they say. And what Garrett wanted to keep hidden most of all was his abuse. He had several stepfathers in and out of his life. Not one, but two of, of them sexually abused him as well as physically abused him. This is where all the cigarette burns came from that was all over his body. He was also so fearful of a video tape surfacing that his step that his stepfather made him appear in that both men prostituted him out. 
I'm seething mad right now. Okay, this mom definitely had horrible tasting guys. You had to know some of this, especially when you see burns all over your child. Where was she when he was being raped and pimped out? I am not sure. I never could find anything that says that. So Garrett is given an attorney. In fact, he's given two. Police say they have Garrett's fingerprints on a butter knife found under Sister Ben's bed. Garrett tells the judge in the arraignment that he's not guilty, that he should have hundreds of fingerprints there because he goes to the convent all the time and helps the nuns move. Neither of his attorney, attorneys have ever done a murder case. Neither of his attorneys request money to hire an investigator, nor do they even go to the convent to question the nuns as to Garrett's story about being there often. In the documentary Last Word, Bishop Leroy Matheson, who presided over the diocese at the time, was interviewed and said that no one ever asked him or the nuns anything that he was aware of. He claims Garrett was there all the time. Bishop Matheson also says he saw cigarette burns all over Garrett and he knew he slept at the football field often to be away from home. His defense team is lacking, to say the least. As we know, there are 12 jurors in a trial. Of the 12, they did not object to one that said he was good friends with members of the police department. One was a colleague of the ME in this case, and one that was named Nathan Shackelford, kin to Judge Jerry Shackelford. Are you saying that Jerry may have been biased? <laughs> Maybe a little. Texas in the 80s, they had the good old boy system down. I don't want to sound like Reba, Babe, or some backwood southern, southern lawyers looking out for themselves. The police are in cahoots with the DA, who is in cahoots with the ME, who is in cahoots with the judge. Well, you get it. This is just my opinion, by the way, but this is how I see it. They needed a conviction, and they railroaded a 17-year-old boy that didn't have anyone fighting for him his whole life. And I just want to say this boy may have been slow, but I am so proud of him for not signing this alleged confession. Probably no surprise to you, but he is found guilty, and he was executed on February 11th, 1992. I can call this a two-for-one. Remember, the Bryson murder was never solved. In 2005, a cold case unit was running what they have um, had from uh, have from crime scene through CODIS, and they get a hit. It matches Veronica Perez Rudata. I'm not Ruda. sure. Ruda, a Cuban that the police had questioned in 1981. He admits to the rape and murder and is sentenced to 45 years in prison. Chief, DA, and Captain said that these cases were related. Do they test anything from Sister Ben's against this guy's DNA? No, they haven't as of yet. If they had, they would have to admit they put an innocent kid to death. You can be the judge and jury as to what you think happened long ago on that Halloween night in Amarillo. Was the devil put to death or just demons that haunted his mind? By the way, there is a documentary called The Last Word. You can check out this. And there's also a horror movie called The Last Word that was made based off, off of this if you need a good horror movie for this spooky season. In the meantime, I have a 